tonight's talk, all about um, our mental health, comes to you in two parts tonight. Um, I had the privilege early on in the week of interviewing a guy called Will Vanderhart, who some of you may have come across. Uh, Will is the director of an organisation called Mind and Soul Foundation. And uh, what this interview was, was basically, you'll see in a minute, because you're going to watch it on the, on the screens, um, but the first part of the interview, sort of the first half, is like a sort of uh, Will as a trained psychologist, uh, reflecting on the pandemic and the effect of the pandemic on our mental health, and where we see ourselves now. And then, uh, towards the end of the interview, he gives a sort of, he's also ordained, so he's a, he's a vicar, he also then gives a theological bit of overview as well. So... That um, is going to be about 15 minutes on the screens, and then I'm going to pick up uh, where Will leaves off and continue. So let's watch this interview that I did with Will, and then I'm going to come and unpack a bit more from the Bible in about 15 minutes. I'm really excited to welcome Will van der Hart here. Will, welcome uh, to this Zoom conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Will, just introduce yourself for those who don't know who you are and what you do. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, hi to everyone. Uh, it's great to see you. I'm Will van der Hart. I'm a priest here in London. And I'm also one of the founding directors of the Mind and Soul Foundation to explore issues of emotional mental health and Christian spirituality. I've been doing that for the last 16 years. And um, we were so grateful for you um, sharing your time. And uh, I think you joined us earlier in the year to talk about issues of mental health um, during the pandemic. And we essentially have sort of, we're, we're feeling like we're coming to the end of it, but we're still in it. And we'd love just to sort of spend some time asking you about what, what you see in terms of our mental health as we sort of re-emerge out of lockdown. We've um, talked a lot about re-emerging and re-establishing patterns and all of that. And just love to find out about what you're, um, yeah, what you're thinking and what you're feeling, what you think God is saying in this season at the moment. So, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really complicated time. Um, when you think about emotional costs, we always think about bad things happening. And obviously, a lot of bad things have happened. So we recognise there's a lot of emotional costs. But what you don't always assume is that actually good things have emotional costs too. Um, there are a couple of psychologists called Hewitt and Flett, and they, they, they started trying to predict when people had nervous breakdowns. And they gave everyone a certain number of life change units back in 1969. Uh, and most of them are, are difficult things. Um, costly things and therefore they apply high numbers of life change units to these events and they said well if you spend over 300 life change units in an 18 month period of time then you'll you have an 80 percent probability of having a nervous breakdown what was interesting though is out of the 43 different categories several of them are really good things so if you get married you know that's sort of 35 life change units and if you get a promotion that's sort of 28 life change units or you know if you if you exceed expectations um, if you're highly commended all these things have costs and one of the things about unlock is actually it's a good thing and so we can think oh well now it's unlocking everything's going to get better but what we don't realize is actually it's emotionally still very very costly and that makes this season quite confusing for people because they feel the need to maybe pretend that they feel more positively than they do. Um, and they feel that, that actually talking about the struggle of unlock, but maybe the way in which life is moving back to normal, um, that's kind of off limits because it feels like they're sort of, now they're being negative about something else. But I would say it's important that we acknowledge that there are emotional costs to positive things. And this season of unlock isn't free of cost. Yeah, I, I would love to just pick up that return to normal phrase mm. that we hear. And um, we, we sort of hear people sort of say nostalgically, I can't wait to get back to this, get back to normal, get back to mm. this. I, I don't know if you have any reflections on that. Normal is certainly 
poorly used as a term and I, I don't think we're getting back to the old normal but equally it's probably unhelpful to overstate um, a new normal so routine is helpful and humans particularly find routine significant and important for their general mental health and well-being so we have to find these sort of rhythms of living really well but like you say the danger is that we either fall into nostalgia where we effectively look backwards and hark back to how things used to be and lament them all the time or we become quite bullish and aggressive about change and almost try and lump lots and lots of changes together and when some people aren't coping well they do that so they drive more change than they need so we have to accommodate the changes and create some sort of new rhythm of living psychologists simply call that habituation um, if it comes to from habit and normalization together we create sort of this idea of habituating change it's when it becomes normal to us and there's a lot of that still going on but Matt, you know we're doing all this having already experienced 18 months nearly two years now of pandemic so people's emotional resilience is extremely low because they've been so overextended for such a long period of time I sort of describe it as going to the petrol station, filling up with five pounds of petrol, if you're lucky to get that these days, but, you know, putting five pounds in the tank and then driving away and trying to start the kind of, you know, a marathon drive from London to Scotland. So this section of time in terms of coming out of pandemic, it's not that we are coming out having been really well rested. It's actually the fact that we're coming out feeling really, really exhausted and then we're trying to pick up these new rhythms of life and over a new sorts of extension, which is extremely challenging because everyone is deeply emotionally depleted. In terms of the impact of the pandemic, obviously some people have um, suffered significantly. Some people have lost family members. Some people have um, been through real, real deep and devastating trauma. Other people might say, I, I don't feel like this has affected my mental health. So there's a sort of a massive wide spectrum of experience and, um, and pain. Um, but what, what would you say to people who sort of have experienced, you know, ex deep trauma and, um, and people who've maybe felt like this hasn't affected them deeply and but maybe yeah. has still been affected in some way? Um, what, what do you see the impact in those two extremes being? Well, typically, sort of extreme extremes of perception aren't actually hugely helpful. Um, obviously, um, if you've experienced really devastating things, you, you you have no power to, if you like, affect your perception of your experience. But if you if you believe you've had a really positive experience, then I, I guess I I challenge that perception and ask to, to 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 reassess. When we think about mental health, people often think about identifying, um, if you like, the pathology of mental health. So they're looking to identify symptoms of mental disease or distress. But the absence or the presence of mental and disease and distress aren't the best way of measuring someone's mental health. So you could actually be, if you like, mentally well, um, whilst you might still experience some issues that are symptomatic with mental ill health. Now, I'd say we've all experienced adversity. The question is whether we go on to experience trauma and the best possible treatment of, of adversity or trauma is not, is not professional, but it's social. And so the question here is not whether we experience some adverse circumstances we have, but whether we're experiencing them with others in community. And if we do that, we can mitigate their impact. 
So rather than becoming traumatizing, they become just adverse circumstances. I think I've seen people over the last 18 months sort of respond in different ways. Some people are a bit um, on edge all the time. Some people are a bit sort of hyper and, um, uh, or some people are a bit sort of apathetic, lethargic. I don't know if you can say anything about our responses there and what we can learn from it and how we can yeah, deal with it now. Sure. So when you're facing threats of any kind, you, your nervous system um, initiates the sympathetic aspect and that's the fight or flight response. So you get ready to battle your way through whatever adversity you might be facing. Now, normally that cycle is quite short. It's about 15 minutes long. You, you're flooded with adrenaline and you resolve the problem. You've, you finish the battle and then you, you calm down again. But when you're in a pandemic, that threat sort of lingers around. Some people describe it as being sort of plugged into an adrenal drip for 18 months. And the trouble about that experience is that we're always slightly wired. We're always looking around for the threats that we then believe we need to control. The trouble is that if you like, our bodies can't sustain that level of pressure um, and it can become habitual. You can almost find yourself sort of ramping up, uh, overworking, over controlling, overthinking, constantly being on edge. And then it becomes a vicious cycle because you feel like, well, I'm on edge, I can't wind down. And then because I can't wind down, I'm still on edge. So we have to make some quite determined decisions about this. Uh, um, the two sorts of two aspects, if you like, of the nervous system, I mentioned the, the fight or flight, the other one's called rest and digest. So the parasympathetic nervous system is what um, kicks into play after uh, we've experienced the sympathetic nervous system's action. Uh, and that's when we begin to come down, we feel calm, we can eat our food well, we can begin to relax, we can sleep well. And you can work towards artificially stimulating that through using breathing techniques, um, through setting aside time for hobbies, uh, through doing some gentle exercise every day, um, spending time with friends, generally taking care of your well-being. And I guess my encouragement is to um, be more self-aware and recognize in yourself where you might be highly adrenalized, but also ask your family and friends if you're not sure. You know, do you think I seem wound up at the moment? Or do you, know, do you think I seem on edge? Um, and see what they perceive in you. But it's really important that we work towards restoring some equilibrium between our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. We have to get used to choosing to rest and recover, despite the fact that some of this pandemic story is not over yet. But I would really encourage people not to sort of hold their breath and say, oh, well, I'll catch up with myself when this is all done and dusted, because actually we, we won't be able to do that. And can you say a little bit about control as well in this season? Because um, for those of us who love to feel like I've got control of my life, I know what's coming up, I know my schedule, this whole season has been a real challenging situation. So yeah, for those of us who struggle with feeling out of control, um, what can we do? I mean, one of the things that makes humans humans uh, is their incredible ability to mitigate risk. Um, we are intolerant to uncertainty and we are brilliant at applying control early to try and avoid difficult circumstances. And we talk about impulsivity uh, as being a real risk factor in people, whereas being sort of considered and worry aware is really, really helpful. But it's only helpful to a point um, because if we apply problem-solving techniques to problems that we cannot solve, we're wasting our time. And unfortunately, sometimes we can get quite obsessive about trying to remain in control when we really know we can't do anything to control our circumstances. Control is both a, a good thing, 
but also it can be inhibiting thing and could become what we call maladaptive. And then it becomes problematic because it begins to inhibit our life. Um, and I think particularly as Christians, there's a, a call here to say, well, actually, we have to remind ourselves that ultimately God is in control and that trust is demonstrated when we, 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 we acknowledge our powerlessness and his power to overcome and uh, that gives us a unique gift really i think in this pandemic to say ultimately lord i feel the pressure to be in control but i acknowledge i'm powerlessness in this situation i can do a little bit uh, to assist but i can't do the whole thing so control is um, natural but it can become problematic and whenever threats are significant we tend to initiate greater levels of control and we have to just keep a check on that and say, hold on a minute, are my controls really doing anything? Or are they just an obsessive way of me tricking myself into believing that I'm, I'm actually safer than I really am? Where, where do you see um, us now in terms of our faith and our mental health and um, how God cares for us, what you see in the person of Jesus and how he mm. responds to people in need? Sure. Well, one of my favourite stories in the Bible is when uh, Jesus was on his way to Jairus's house to heal Jairus's daughter. And um, obviously, it was, a, it was an emergency on a level, and this girl was dying. And Jesus was sort of, if you like, in a hurry, or certainly his disciples was in a hurry to get in there. And, and, and here you've got this uh, woman who has been suffering from menstrual bleeding for 12 years. And now she knows she's unclean. And so the lady um, in the crowd touches the hem of Jesus' cloak in faith that she will receive a healing. Um, now, I find this a fascinating story. I mean, she, she, she knows that she needs to reach out in order to find the healing. And her shame about her condition would have given her the sense that actually she shouldn't reach out. And many people with mental health problems or in mental distress have that same feeling of, of, of a shame uh, and that they won't reach out because they're worried that they will be judged if they do. Now, I think it's really fascinating that Jesus stops at this point. Jesus cares as much for this elderly lady as he does for this young child of this important person. And Jesus isn't going to let that lady get away with half a healing. And he, he blesses her by acknowledging that her faith, her reaching out, if you like, her faith in him has brought her a healing. But by publicly revealing her identity, he does a different sort of healing. Because amongst all those people in that environment, he has now demonstrated that this woman who was perceived to be unclean was now clean. So he's not just restored her physical body, he's also restored her social body. So now he's declared her as being healed. So everyone in that crowd is now welcoming her back into society. Jesus has now also restored her spiritually because women who are suffering from menstruation weren't allowed to enter into the temple. And therefore, they weren't allowed to participate in worship. Now, that was a difficult burden to carry once a month. But this woman's been carrying this burden for years and years and years. So now, having been publicly declared that she's been healed, she's now able to re-enter the temple courts and re-engage in her temple worship. So Jesus has healed this woman physically, socially, and spiritually. And you can just begin to imagine now what happens to her psychologically because she encounters a psychological healing, which is the restoration of her whole self and the overcoming of her sense of shame and otherness. All of this 
if you like, as a demonstration of a biopsychosocial spiritual healing, which is really what Jesus offers us. And I think what I'm nervous about is a sort of binary view of church, where you get healed to come to church, when in fact you come to church to get healed. You know, Jesus, an encounter with Jesus is a healing, if you like, uh, spiritually, uh, it's a healing. Physically, it's a healing. Socially, it's a healing. Psychologically, um, I'd encourage us not to compartmentalize our healing journey, but involve Jesus, involve others, involve the church, and involve psychiatric and psychological professionals. If we need them, involve medication when it's necessary and helpful. You know, all of these are important because ultimately we need a healing that's much more than just one thing as that woman experienced on that particular day. And Jesus cares about it. So my encouragement to you, I guess, today is to, is to reach out and experience that healing, not just from Jesus, but also the acknowledgement of the presence of others who can stand with you in your circumstance. Absolutely brilliant. Um, incredible insight, wisdom, knowledge. Um, and the good news is that if you were struggling to keep up or make notes during that, you might be thinking, what was that thing? I need to jot it down. Uh, we are going to be posting that uh, interview on our YouTube channel tomorrow, which is great news. So you can rewatch it. And I would really encourage you to rewatch it. I've probably watched that three or four or five times um, since I did it. I just thought, wow, that is so interesting. I need to unpack that a bit more. Um, we are going to have a chance in a moment to pray with each other, pray for one another. Uh, but before we do that tonight, I'd just love to revisit that story that Will touched on in uh, Mark's Gospel, where Jesus um, heals the woman. It's found in Mark chapter 5. Um, I'm just going to read it to us, and then we're going to unpack a little bit from it um, before we respond tonight. It says this, Mark chapter 5, and this is verse 24. It says, a large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. But because Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So tonight, I would love just to pick out two things from this passage, just to get us thinking and to get you thinking about how we respond uh, to this passage and to uh, World Mental Health Day on this day uh, in our faith as well. This lady in the story, as Will unpacked, demonstrates her faith so powerfully. What she's doing here is reaching out physically for a healing that is uh, physical, mental, spiritual, and social. Her faith is in who Jesus is and in what Jesus can do. And uh, Will picked this up quite early on in his interview. It says, we, we need to involve Jesus in our healing. So my first encouragement for us tonight 
is that simple message to reach out and trust and involve Jesus in your restoration, in your wellness, and in your healing. Today on this day, World Mental Health Day, you've probably seen social media, emails, different things. This um, catchphrase, it's okay to not be okay. We see that uh, on a day like today, especially we see it uh, quite a lot around as well. And my prayer is that that phrase would apply most of all to our lives in church. It's okay to not be okay in church. In fact, I'd, I'd want to add it for us to think church is a safe place for us. Church is a community, a safe place where you can bring yourself honestly before God, before other people, to cry out to him and to be honest before God, not to hide uh, things, not to leave things at the door, not to put on your church face and your church clothes and think I'm going to you know, hold it together whilst I'm in church, but to be yourself and to be honest in church. I heard a phrase uh, a long time ago about honesty and vulnerability in church, uh, which said this, it's okay to bleed in hospital, we don't think anything about bleeding in hospital, that's what you're there for, and it's also okay to cry in church, to bring your cry, your heart's cry to God honestly. And I love that phrase that Will said, people don't get healed to come to church, they come to church to get healed. And I think more than ever on a day like today, we in church need to break that lie, break that preconception that church is full of sorted people. Church is full of people who have got it all together, got no problems, uh, life is going fine. Because I think sometimes people think, I could never be in church because I could never bring myself uh, into that situation. The truth is, if we're honest, and if I'm honest with you, is that we're all broken, we're all in need of healing. And we come to church to meet together, to encourage each other as we look to God in our lives. We look to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform and change us. And we do it together. Our faith is not a private activity. It's not a, um, something that we do just on our own. But there is power in being together. So my message and my encouragement to you tonight is that Jesus meets us wherever we are. Jesus meets us in our mess. He meets you tonight in your anxiety. He meets you in your depression. He meets you in your panic attacks. He meets you in your bipolar disorder. He meets you in your eating disorders, in your OCD, in your PTSD, whatever it is that you bring tonight. Jesus is there. Jesus knows you. And Jesus longs to remind you that he is Lord of your mind. But the good news in all of this, the good news for us tonight, is that Jesus meets us there, but doesn't leave us there. Jesus longs to bring us fullness of life. He longs to bring us wholeness and wellness and restoration and healing. So this whole idea then of reaching out, of reaching out. I'd love to think of it in two ways tonight. Firstly, I'd love to think of it as reaching out for help. And then secondly, a slightly different dynamic of reaching out to help, reaching out to help someone else. So first of all, this, reaching out for help. Um, one of the hardest parts of um, the restoration of the healing process in our mental health is that first step of saying, I'm in need of help. I need to reach out. I need to do something about this. As we heard in the interview 
Uh, it brings up feelings of embarrassment, of shame, of uh, feeling like you might get judged, worried about what you might look like, what others might think of you, what your family might think of you. And our prayer at the Knicks, as a team and as a church and as a community, is that we would, uh, if you are struggling and if you are suffering, that you wouldn't struggle or suffer alone, but that you would reach out. And there are three ways that you can do this. Um, the first is this. Together, as a community, we reach out to God because he knows us. He is the one who made us, who created us, who knows how many hairs are on our heads, it says in the Bible. He knows the thoughts that are in our heads even before we think them. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And the reason that we can reach out to him is not some sort of idea that we came up with as, as people thinking, I must be able to reach out to God. No, it's seen in the person of Jesus. God first reached out to us and gave us a way to connect with him. He instigated the relationship and we respond by being able to reach out to him. Secondly then, we reach out to God and we can reach out to others, the people around us in this community. And we do this at St. Nick's, as we heard uh, earlier on, in different ways, small groups throughout the week, in alpha groups, in Tuesday prayer. There are moments and encounters available to us, small, safe spaces where we can reach out to others. And uh, that is why in a church like this, where, where people are probably more isolated than ever over the last uh, 18 months, we create these moments just to say, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love you to be able to reach out to others, to build friendships, to share life, to grow in faith. And we would love to encourage you to do that. And our prayer as well for that is that you would be able to find a space in this church where you could pray uh, or say these, say these five words to someone. And it's this, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? I've got a lot going on. I'm feeling a bit stressed. I feel like my anxiety is, is rising. Will you pray for me? Five simple words, five words that if anyone asked me at any time, wherever I was, I would say yes. And in fact, I'd do it right there. If it was in the street, if it was a bus or wherever, I'd like, I will pray for you wherever you are. If you say those words, will you pray for me? So reach out to others. The third thing that I'd love to encourage us to reach out for is um, reach out to healthcare professionals. Sometimes um, our conditions and our uh, mental illness and our anxiety requires us to take a step towards those who are trained, those who are professional, whether it's a GP, whether it's a psychologist, whatever it may be, a counsellor, and just to say, I, I need some help here. I need uh, to seek some support. It might just be for a certain amount of time, for a season in your life. It might be an ongoing thing. But again, I would encourage you to face that sense of um, fear, that sense of shame or embarrassment, and, and reach out. If, if professional help is what you need, uh, then I encourage you to do that. And if you're unsure where that um, uh, will lead you or where, where to find that support, I would head to our website, first of all. It's the Nick's website. Uh, there's the mental health page on there. There's a whole list of um, different um, signposting that we can offer you, whether it's counselling, whether it's other support. And, and there's loads and loads of places that are local and national. Uh, and if you need to speak to us as well, grab any one of the team and we can help you and signpost um, you to that service. So that's reaching out for help. Second thing I love to think about tonight, maybe, and maybe you're here thinking, 
do you know what? I, I feel like I'm in a good place at the moment. I feel like things in my life are pretty good. I feel like my mental health is in a good place. Well, I would say um, bring that before God and say and, and thank God that your mental health is in a great place right now. But I wonder whether you know someone in your life, maybe someone close to you, maybe someone at your workplace, whose mental health is not in a great place. Or maybe there's someone on your heart that you know struggles with their mental health. Well, I'd love you to think about reaching out tonight as a way to reach out to help someone else. Maybe to stand alongside someone and say, I'm going to check in with you from time to time. Maybe a phone call once a week. Maybe we'll meet up for a walk and a chat. Who is it that's on your heart, in your life at the moment, that you could reach out to? And um, what I think I've learned over the last 18 months is that we're all involved in this battle in our mental health, in the fight against uh, the pandemic uh, or the, the, the sort of epidemic of, of mental health rising cases uh, that we see across the country at the moment. It's thought, and the statistics are changing all the time, that one in four people were uh, suffering from mental health before the pandemic. They think it's probably uh, rising to one in three. So uh, the numbers are rising, and the numbers don't seem to look like they're going to stop rising. So we are all in this together, whether we're reaching out for help or reaching out to help. And I, I also, as I've um, got to know some of the community at St. Nick's here, I've been amazed at the people that um, professionally give their lives uh, to helping. There's a, there's a guy who's downstairs right now called Peter, who's a um, CAMS uh, psychiatrist, that's child and adolescent mental health. Uh, I think of a guy called Josh who's gone off to study um, nursing, in mental health nursing. There's, there's people in this community who are so passionate about supporting, helping professionally. But let's not leave it to uh, those people. Let's all be involved in uh, being available, asking those questions. Can I pray for you? And will you pray for me? Two very, very simple questions that we can ask and, uh, and be asked as well. The second thing um, I'd love to just touch on tonight, separate to the reaching out thing, is Jesus' response to the lady in the story. And you'll notice if you read the sort of backstory, Jesus is actually in the crowd because he's on his way to the daughter of a very important person who's ill. In fact, she's so ill, she's about to die. And Jesus is being hurried along by his disciples saying, come on, Jesus, forget the crowd. You've got to head to this guy's house because this, this girl, the daughter of someone really important, is in need. And Jesus is in the crowd. You can imagine the scene. Uh, hundreds of people probably gathering around him, trying to get near him, trying to speak to him. This lady gets near to him and he feels power go out from him and that she is healed. And what I love about this is that Jesus stops. He's, he's being hurried by the disciples, but Jesus actually is not in a hurry. He has got time to stop and to speak to this lady because he knows his priority in that moment is for that lady's restoration and healing. He's not in a hurry. She is not too insignificant and he gives her his time. And I don't know about you, whether you're here tonight thinking, do you know what, my situation, my mental health, my, my situation is, is, is probably is too insignificant for Jesus. Jesus wouldn't stop for me. Jesus wouldn't consider me important enough or significant enough to even think about dealing with me. Well, tonight I'd love to encourage you and to tell you that Jesus knows you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus cares for you and is concerned for you tonight. 
in a crowd he would stop for you. So as we saw in that, um, the passage as well, the lady is restored not only in her body, but she's restored socially back into society. She's restored spiritually back into be able to worship in the temple. And she's restored in her mental health as well. And perhaps on this Sunday, you need to hear these words again tonight. Maybe it's the first time you've been here and you're thinking, gosh, what, what have I come to tonight? Well, we believe that Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of our whole lives, including our mental health. That this is not a place where we need to hide, not a place where we need to leave our problems at the door, but Jesus wants to be involved in our lives and in our healing and in our restoration. Jesus is Lord of your mind. He cares for your mental health. He cares for my mental health. He cares for your restoration and your wellness. And whatever state your mental health is in tonight, or maybe in the future, Jesus is here. Jesus cares for you. And Jesus longs for fullness of life. We're going to worship again in a moment. And then we're going to lead into a time of prayer where we can just be real and honest with each other. And um, maybe something that, you're, uh, something that I've said or something Will said in that, in that message has stirred in you. Maybe you're here tonight thinking, do you know what? I've never acknowledged um, something that I've been thinking or, or my mental health, a condition. I've never acknowledged it in church. I've never brought it before God. I've never involved my faith in my mental health and my mental restoration. Or maybe tonight is a, a moment on World Mental Health Day, tonight here, where you can just say to God, Lord, would you be the Lord of my mind? Jesus, would you come into my life and fill my mind with your thoughts, with your goodness, with your presence? And maybe tonight you're here, maybe with someone physically tonight, or maybe you're um, aware of someone in your world, in your life, that struggles with their mental health. And tonight you're feeling that call, that sense of, of burden on your heart to reach out to help them. To say, what is it that I can pray for? How can I check in with you? How are you doing? Well, tonight is a moment where we can bring all those thoughts, whatever they are, before God and pray for each other in a safe space. And there's people who would love to pray for you tonight. So why don't we stand? I'm going to pray, then we're going to worship, and then we're going to have time to pray for each other.